Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, we're close to the end of our Prayers to the Creator series. We began in Genesis over two and a half years ago, (laughs) and now we've come to the book of Revelation. Yes, Scott, the last book of the Bible. I found, according to our criteria, 15 books of the Bible recording a prayer to God as Creator, and now that we've reached the book of the Revelation, that makes a total of 16. And for whatever reason, I thought that more than just one quarter of the books of the Bible would record a prayer to the Creator. Well, me too, Scott. But let's go ahead and read this great prayer of worship and praise to the Creator. It's in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. Now, we'll look at the surrounding context as well, but immediately we can see these words are addressed to the Lord, and he's identified as the Creator. And it may be the best-known prayer to the Creator in all the Bible, since it has been made into a popular chorus sung by many of the Lord's people in churches, camps, even concerts. Yes, it is well known. It's sung or recited in many venues, but what makes it especially significant is this prayer we just read was recorded by the Apostle John upon his witnessing it being offered to the Lord in the throne room of the Almighty. And as I recall, those speaking were not just some folks off the street or even in the (laughs) pew. (laughs) That's for sure. The persons that offered this prayer were spectacular angelic beings who themselves would bring any man to his knees. Yet in the presence of the Creator, they hide their faces. So now let's start reading the surrounding account in Revelation chapter 4. And what I want to point out about this scene in heaven is, it is nothing like what we would observe on earth today. Nope. It uses reference points we're familiar with, like an emerald or a rainbow or thunder and lightning. But I think all these things that John is seeing are images quite different from anything seen on earth. Now, there are 10 verses leading up to the prayer we read in verse 11, and I don't want to take the time to read all of them. But Scott, let's go ahead and start reading at verse 1 of Revelation chapter 4, which begins the description of a rare glimpse of the actual throne room of the Lord. Okay, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. Verse 3. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Now I'll read verses 6 and 8. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And verse 8, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So that finishes verse 8. 
And to that point in the vision, the ceaseless proclamation of those astounding six-winged creatures is that the one on the throne is holy, almighty, and transcendent. So you're equating the phrase who was and who is and who is to come with transcendence. Yes, basically. That phrase seems to set the Lord's existence above or even outside of time and as an actual scene of worship at the very throne of the Lord God. I'd say it reveals the most fundamental attributes of God underlying our understanding of Him, especially in our worship. He is holy, transcendent, and almighty, or put another way, the creator of all things. So you would equate the Lord's identity as the Almighty with being the creator. Yes, I do. So just based on this passage in Revelation 4 alone, I would propose that the identity of the Lord, in Hebrew, Yahweh, as creator, is one of the three most fundamental attributes of God. Now, there certainly may be differences of opinions on this. Some would say there is just one most basic attribute of God, that being his holiness. But he reveals himself in so many different ways. It seems to me the three most basic attributes of God are these. First, he is absolutely holy. Second, he is transcendent. And third, he is the creator. Now, there definitely is overlap between those attributes, but I think they are also distinguishable as revealed in the Bible. And I think this passage describing the worship of the Lord God in heaven there in Revelation 4 and in verse 8 in particular supports this proposal. Then in the verses that follow, the demonstration of his omnipotence as the Almighty is proclaimed in verse 11 that we read. Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. The understanding that the Lord is the creator of all things truly forms one of the most basic reasons for why we worship the Lord. It's no wonder, then, that Satan would do all he can to undermine our understanding of that attribute of God. Oh, you're right on, Scott. And that deception of his is not only directed at the unbelievers, but also at the believers, the children of God, in order to diminish our awe of the Lord and our estimation of just who it is that loved us and gave himself up for us on the cross. So many people who claim Jesus as their Savior still think they need to add something to his work on their behalf to ultimately be worthy of redemption. It is a tragic deception indeed. If the holy, transcendent Creator has declared us righteous through our faith in Him and what He alone did for us on Calvary, what could possibly be lacking that we must add anything to it? The idea that we must add our share is tantamount to an insult to the Almighty. Anything we might do must be done purely out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. There is nothing to be done in addition to what he has done to gain our acceptance in the sight of the Holy One. So, Dr. Scripture, those thoughts of the Lord's holiness and his identity as the Creator are fundamental in our worship. Therefore, it follows that they should be part of our mindset when we pray, Mm -hmm. which is what we've seen so often as we've studied the prayers to the Creator in the Bible. Indeed, Scott. But I have a question about the scene there in Revelation 4. As you pointed out, the worshipers are angelic beings. And as you said, they hid their faces as they spoke. 
I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but it doesn't say they hid their faces in Revelation 4. So why do you say they did? Excellent question, Scott. And it's because this same throne room scene is described in Isaiah. I say the same scene, it at least involves the same amazing angelic beings proclaiming the same words of worship to the Lord, but this scene in Isaiah 6 includes a couple of descriptive details not mentioned in Revelation. So Scott, read Isaiah 6.1. Okay, and these are the words of the prophet Isaiah. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Verse 2, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Verse 3, And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So there we learn what those creatures are named, Seraphim. And we learn what they do with all those wings. With two of them, they covered their face as they flew above the Lord in the presence of the Lord. Isn't it fascinating? There in the Old Testament vision of Isaiah and in the New Testament vision of John, we see the ongoing worship of the Lord and the proclamation of his attributes by fantastic beings that must have great power, but who humble themselves before their creator. Ironic, isn't it, that supernatural beings of such great power humble themselves so dramatically before God? But in contrast, we frail human beings dismiss, reject, even consciously rebel against God. He truly works in mysterious ways. Yes, he does, Scott. And it seems, in part, to be for the purpose of genuine relationship. We humans have the option to reject God's commands and His love, but we also have the capacity, through faith, to willingly obey and not only receive His love, but reciprocate. And we do that in response to His love demonstrated on the cross. We love Him because He first loved us. That's right. And when we come to understand and trust in His work on our behalf— When he sacrificed his only son for the payment of our sins, it enables us, by faith, to have a clear conscience before him and have genuine fellowship with him, our creator. And that draws our hearts out in love and gratitude for what he has done. And as we get to know him more and more, our love and gratitude grows for who he is as well. We have fellowship with the Holy One who is transcendent and our Creator and the Creator of all things. And so, Scott, in the scene that we read in Revelation 4, we saw only angelic beings around the throne. So you think those 24 elders were not human elders? Yes, I do believe that they were not human, as do a lot of other scholars. That scene seems to just be angelic beings, especially when we read more in chapter 5, where we definitely are introduced to a host of humans included in the scene of worship. In Revelation 5, starting at verse 6, the slain lamb, who is Christ Jesus, is now seen in the throne room as well. And it says, quote, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing, as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. 
And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. For thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Then verse 11, And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So that would include just about everything and everybody. (laughs) Notice that when the angelic beings were worshiping God, they had a threefold blessing. Worthy art thou, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. And they said that because God had created all things. But when all of humanity, when all of creation joins in, they had a sevenfold blessing because the Lamb had not only created them, but had redeemed them. Thus they say, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And that's not what I say. That's what all the throng in heaven says.